Hey Siri, define absquatulate. Absquatulate is a humorous term that means to leave abruptly or to flee. Searching videos for absquatulate. What's up, Northridge Church? We are grateful to have you with us today, wherever you might be joining us from, whether that's our Arondequoy campus, our Greece campus, our Henrietta campus, or our Webster campus. Thanks for being with us. My name is Nate. I'm our Webster campus pastor. In fact, I want to give a shout out to everyone in Webster this morning. I love you guys. Hope you're having an awesome morning so far. Uh, don't want to forget about those of you two who are joining us online. We're, we're all also glad to have you with us as well. And we've been working through a series together called In Other Words, where we have been talking about Different words that perhaps you've heard before, maybe you haven't heard before, they're big words, it can be confusing, maybe you've heard them within uh, church before or within Christian circles and you're like, I'm just not really sure exactly what that, that word means. So each week we've been taking one and we have been looking at that and trying to define it and help us understand and appreciate these important foundational words to the Christian faith and uh, I'm excited to, to continue us along this morning and I think um, as we begin today, I think it's fair to say, I think all of us would agree that there are just some things that are better in person, right? We would agree to that, that there are just some things that are better in person. Maybe for some of you, it's your favorite artist or your favorite band, that seeing them live and in concert, oh man, there's just nothing like it. It's so much better than listening to them through your headphones or through the stereo in, uh, in your car. Maybe for some of you, it's your favorite team or your favorite athlete, seeing them in person, live at the stadium, man, there's just nothing like it. One of, uh, one of the benefits of being a Bills fan and living in Rochester, New York, is that they do their spring, or not their spring, but their, their summer training. Their training camp is right here in Rochester at St. John Fisher College. It's an awesome, easy way to have an up-close and a personal view of these incredible, powerful, amazing athletes, just something you can appreciate through a screen. It's incredible. Uh, reading a brochure about traveling to Europe is not the same as traveling to Europe and seeing it firsthand. Talking to your boyfriend or your girlfriend through your phone, through FaceTime, through a screen, it is not the same as face-to-face -face with that person. Some things are just better in person. And the word that we are going to look at today that is so important to the Christian faith has to do with that very idea that God actually wrote a face-to-face -face plan into history. That's what we're going to look at today. And the word we'll be looking at is the word incarnation. Incarnation. Now, for some of you, you hear that word and you're like, incarnation, what in the world does that word mean? Is, is that, isn't that like kind of, isn't that a flower, right? Incarnation. Uh, to all my Nacho Libre fans out there, if you've seen the movie, which I assume is everyone, you immediately think about Incarnacion and write this love song that Nacho plays declaring his love for her. 
Maybe you're like, incarnation, isn't that, is it incarnation, is that a, is that a baseball player, a famous baseball? What does incarnation mean? Well, I want to define it. And the word just simply means this, God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Incarnation, it is a big word. It, it comes from a Latin word, and literally it just means in the flesh, incarnate, in meat. And when Christians use this word, they're talking about Jesus. God in the flesh. Oftentimes we hear this word around Christmas time. Right, when we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, his incarnation, God entering into human history. But why is this word so important? I want to try to unpack and help us understand why this, this word is so important to the Christian faith. And really, there are two parts to the incarnation that are really kind of two foundational doctrines to the Christian faith that we're going to look at today. And the first part that we have to understand to truly appreciate and understand the incarnation is this, that Jesus is fully God. As part of the incarnation, God in the flesh, that Jesus is fully God. And then secondly, that Jesus is also fully man. He's fully God, he's fully man. Not 50% God, 50% man. He is 100% God and he is 100% man. And what I wanna do is I wanna break down each of those two parts to help us really understand these two important truths. I wanna start with the first one, that Jesus is fully God, and I wanna do that by answering this question. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? There is no greater question you could ask. There's a ton of questions that you can get wrong throughout this life that can cause a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty, but this question is the most important question. If you get this question wrong, everything hinges on this question, including the life you live right now and your life throughout all of eternity. And what's interesting about, about Jesus is that Jesus is the most famous person that has ever walked the face of this earth. earth. He's the most famous person in all of history. More books have been written about Jesus. More songs have been sung to him. More paintings have been painted um, about Jesus than, than any other person. In fact, we divide history around his incarnation. B.C. and A.D., he's worshiped by over a billion people on this earth. There is no one more famous than Jesus throughout all of history. But what's interesting is that a lot of people have a lot of different views about Jesus and who he is. Jesus is always popular in culture, always popular within culture. You could go to Urban Outfitters, and I'm sure they would have a t-shirt there with Jesus printed on it that you could purchase. You look within culture, look within music. Jesus shows up all over the place in music, whether it's Kanye West, whether it's U2 or Bono or The Killers or Carrie Underwood and Jesus Take the Wheel. He's all over the place when it comes to, to music, but not only music, but even, even movies. Uh, I don't know if any of you, you have seen Talladega Nights, right? The legend of Ricky Bobby and his prayers to baby Jesus and his golden fleece diapers, Right? He's, he's all over the place. Uh, Mel Gibson, The Passion of the Christ, a movie all about the death of Jesus, one of the best-selling films of all time. Jesus is popular. He's very popular, but not necessarily worshipped by many in culture. So really, Jesus is really just kind of like a marketing item. He's just a marketing item. Known as a really good guy, did some great things, told some great stories, but not widely believed to be God. Even world religions have to contend with Jesus. 
Every world religion has to have a view and a take on who Jesus is because he's such an enormous figure in history that they all have to have some idea or view on who Jesus is. And all of them in one way, shape, form, or another come to great prophet, great guy, great teacher, but he himself, he was not God. But I think in answering this question, is Jesus God, what we really should be asking is this question. What was Jesus' view of himself? What was Jesus' view of himself? Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone has a perspective and an idea about Jesus. But what did Jesus actually say about himself? To me, that's really the question. Because if Jesus didn't claim to be God, Christians shouldn't worship him as God. If Jesus didn't claim that he could forgive sin, then why would we ask him to forgive us of our sin? If he said, or if he never said that he could answer our prayers, we have no reason to pray to him. So what did Jesus say about himself? And the claims are actually startling. In fact, we don't even have enough time to to cover all of the claims that Jesus made to divinity, uh, to being God. I just want to look at a few of them. And the first one is this, that Jesus said he was God. Jesus said he was God. Now, before we get Deep into this point, I think just hearing these words are incredibly important because no other major religion in history has ever had as its founder someone who has claimed to be God. Mohammed didn't say that he was God. The Buddha never claimed to be God. Gandhi, who's well known within the Hinduism faith, never claimed to be God. In fact, there is a very short list of people in the history of the world that have ever claimed to be God, and that list generally includes cult leaders people that are very dangerous, extremely dangerous, people we would never want to elevate to the position of respect, authority, want to follow. So this is a startling claim that Jesus is making. And let me just show you a couple of examples. Mark 14, verse 61. And the situation here is that Jesus is on trial because he keeps saying that he is God. So they bring him before the leaders and the officials. It's like being brought to the court to testify. Look at verse 61. Jesus is asked, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? That's the Christ or the anointed one of God, the son of the blessed one. I am, said Jesus. Now that statement, that response from Jesus is very significant because that is a name from God from the Old Testament. And those who were interrogating uh, him were very familiar with the Bible, especially the first five books of the Bible. Most likely, they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. They are Jewish religious leaders. They're familiar with the Bible and what had happened in the days of Moses. And what had happened is that God had spoke to Moses through a burning bush. We see this in Exodus 3. And he had told Moses, he commanded him to go into Egypt and to liberate God's people from slavery to freedom. And when Moses says, God, who should I say has sent me? The answer that's given to Moses by God is, is you are to tell them that I am has sent you. You see, by saying this, by Jesus responding with that statement of I am, he is saying that he is the God of Moses. He is the God of the Old Testament. Jesus said, I am. And then verse 62, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's actually a quote right from Daniel chapter 10. And Jesus takes this title, the Son of Man, and he applies it to himself, saying that the promise that's made in Daniel that God would come as a man, the Son of Man, that promise is fulfilled in me. Coming on the clouds of heaven. He's talking about God entering into human history, incarnating, 
picturing him riding down to earth as a man. And here's what's amazing. The priests, the leaders, they are absolutely devastated by the words of Jesus. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. Notice the word that the high priest uses, blasphemy. What does that word mean? Well, blasphemy means someone who is claiming to be God, someone who is declaring themselves to be God. And look, this is an enormous issue because two of the first 10 commandments in Exodus 20 are there's one God and he alone is to be worshiped. So Jesus is saying here that he is the only God and that he is to be worshiped as God. That's an incredible claim. Let me give you another example. Jesus said this on multiple occasions. Uh, John 8, verse 58 Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Once again, Jesus uses this word, this title for himself of I am, and again he's saying I'm the God of the Old Testament, I'm the God of Moses, I'm the God of Abraham. And the result was this, verse 59, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they pick up stones? Why did they want to kill Jesus? Well, the penalty for blasphemy, someone declaring to be God, was you are to be put to death. You are to be killed. You are to be stoned to death. They very clearly understood that Jesus was saying he is God. And here's why this is so important is that sometimes people will say, Jesus was a good dude, great guy, great teacher, did a lot of really, really cool things. But they'll say he, he didn't say that he was God. He didn't think that he was God. That's just something Christians made up many, many years later. But the problem with that, and really the tragic error in that line of thinking, is that those people completely misunderstand Jesus' words. And my point is, is that Christians have believed that Jesus is God because Jesus himself clearly, repeatedly, emphatically said that I am God. And those who heard it were absolutely certain at what Jesus was saying. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. They accuse, or the, and then they try to put him to death. And what we never see Jesus doing is recanting. We never see Jesus like, oh, oh time, you thought I, I was saying I was God? No, here's what I actually meant, never, once. In fact, he just continues to make these claims all the way up until, until his death. It shows us he was convinced that, that he is God. Let me, let me show you one more example. John 10, verse 30, this is Jesus speaking here, and he says, I and the Father are one. Now, this is so important because the Bible repeatedly teaches us and tells us that God is one. In fact, the Jews, they would recite this three times a day. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it's known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. They would say that three times a day. So this idea of monotheism, that there is one God, that's the bedrock of the Jewish faith. It's the bedrock of the Jewish people. That there is one God. And Jesus says here in John 10 that God the Father and I, we are one God. And how do those who are present respond? Verse 31, again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Right? Here he goes again. Here Jesus goes. Uh, once again, he's declaring himself to be God. This is blasphemy. How could he do this? This is a repeated cycle if you look throughout the Gospels at the life of Jesus. But notice verse 32. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And this is so important. Don't miss these words. From Jesus' critics, from his enemies, we are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, 
a mere man claimed to be God. And I would say that that statement from Jesus' enemies is crystal clear. It's overwhelmingly clear that you, a mere man, claim to be God. You see, the reason that Jesus would ultimately be crucified on the cross was because of the claims that he continually made that he was God, that he is God. Jesus healed people. They didn't want to kill him because he healed people. He fed people. They, they didn't want to kill him because he fed people. He performed miracles. They didn't want to kill him because he performed miracles. He kept saying that he was God. That is why Jesus was put to death. Jesus claimed to be God. One other, one other claim I want us to look at that Jesus made, it's this, that Jesus said he was the only way to heaven. Jesus said he was the only way to heaven. And we see this clearly in John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way. And notice that singular exclusive Not multiple ways. I am the way and the truth. Not multiple truths, not multiple ideologies, not multiple perspectives. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what Jesus is really saying here is, look, all of history comes down to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That there's not multiple truths, there's not multiple ways, there's only one way, and that is through Jesus. And in all of these statements, and there's many others we could look at, Jesus is repeatedly, clearly, passionately, unapologetically telling us, I am God. I am God. Why did Jesus die? It was because he said that he was God. And in response to that, every single human being has to come to a point where they either acknowledge Jesus is God or they don't. We have to decide what we believe about who Jesus claimed that he was. In fact, it's a question for me and for you today of this. Do you believe Jesus is God? Do you believe Jesus is God? He said that he was God. Do you believe him? So that's the first part of the incarnation of understanding the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. Now I want to talk about the second part that is really important, the humanity of Jesus. And I want to do that by trying to answer this question, was Jesus fully human? If Jesus is God, how does God become a human being? Was he still God? Was he something less than God? It raises a lot of valid questions that I want to try to help us un- understand and answer. And I want to start um, by addressing this question by really looking at Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, he kind of, well, Isaiah here, he's prophesying about the Messiah. Um, he's describing Jesus and who he is and what he will look like. And look at what it says in Isaiah 53, verse 2. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. In other words, Isaiah is saying, look, he's just kind of like a regular guy, nothing special. But one of the interesting things about Jesus is that because he is so popular in history and in the world, um, in fact, if you look 30 years ago, 40 years ago, there were, when movies started to come out about the life of Jesus, if any of you have seen those movies, you could always pick out who Jesus was. Because he was the dude that had like the nuclear glow. Like he were like, if there's a crowd of people, you'd be like, there, there he is, there's Jesus. He's like glowing over there. Uh, or he'd have a halo around him or, or, or paintings of Jesus would almost, he would look otherworldly. He wouldn't look like what Isaiah describes as just a regular guy. So Isaiah says that view or picture of Jesus isn't very ac- accurate. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He's just a regular guy. A normal guy. 
In the Gospel of Luke, we get additional insight into the humanity of Jesus. Luke 2.52, it says this, that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with men and God. So Jesus would have gone through the normal physiological stages that every human being goes through. He would have been born. He would have had 10 fingers and 10 toes. He would have been hungry. He would have needed to eat. He would have had to go to the bathroom. As he got older, he would have experienced all the things an adolescent boy would experience. Um, his voice would sound like a man at one minute, and then it would squeak, and it would be higher in, in another minute. Um, he got hungry. He needed to eat. We know that he also showed emotion. He wept. He cried when Lazarus uh, died. He showed emotion. We know he was thirsty when he was on the cross, and he asked for a drink. Jesus experienced what it was like to be a human being. He lived as a human being. And one of the things that I think is oftentimes overlooked about Jesus is that Jesus had a sense of humor. Jesus, in fact, used sarcasm quite a bit. And oftentimes that sarcasm was directed at religious leaders to kind of poke fun at religious leaders at, at what they believed. And it's interesting that religious leaders were the ones that crucified Jesus, so apparently they didn't think that that was very funny. In fact, if you look through Matthew 23, in Matthew 23, there's a number of examples of where Jesus is just kind of like poking at the religious leaders. And on one occasion, he makes fun of them for tithing out of their spice racks. These guys are so religious that they go to their spice rack and they give God a tenth of everything. A tenth of mint, a tenth of dill, a tenth of cinnamon. And Jesus kind of mocks them for their way too detailed OCD mechanism for tithing. They're far too tidy and they've missed out on greater issues like justice and mercy. He's saying, look, you guys take yourself so seriously that you're tithing a tenth of your spices, but you're not even kind to people. You're not very loving. You're not very caring. So that, again, that's part of Jesus' humanity, that, that he would use sarcasm to point out to religious people that really what they believe is kind of a joke, to point out their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness. All that to say, Jesus was fully human, emotionally, fully human, physically, Jesus was fully human. Full range of full humanity. That's the doctrine of the incarnation, that God himself incarnated. God became flesh. He entered into human history as a human being. That's the incarnation. And really, here, here's the big picture or the big idea of the incarnation uh, to us is that Jesus himself was a missionary. Jesus himself was a missionary. He lived in the culture of heaven and entered into, came down into the culture of earth. He learned the language as a boy. He would have participated in the holidays and the festivals and the feasts. Jesus is God as a missionary, come to earth to save people from their sins. In fact, cross-cultural cross missions comes from this idea that we see in the incarnation of God leaving the culture of heaven, entering into the culture of earth. And sometimes what I find really hard to understand is that there are, there are some well-meaning Christians, some churches that really struggle with engaging with culture that they struggle with being culturally relevant. And I really struggle with that because that is exactly what Jesus did in his incarnation by coming to earth, leaving the culture of heaven, entering into the culture of earth. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was the greatest missionary who ever lived. And that's why in following Jesus' example, that's why we strive so hard here at Northridge Church to be a church that is culturally relevant, to engage with culture, to take the message of the gospel, not changing it in any way, 
but articulating it to our culture so that they can engage with it, hear it, and then have an opportunity to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he, he says it this way in Philippians 2. This is one of the most important passages of Scripture when it comes to the incarnation. Paul explains in great detail how God could become a man and the example that we as followers of Christ are to follow. Look at what he says in verse 5. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, meaning that Jesus is everything that God is, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, meaning Jesus didn't hold on to his rights. Jesus didn't hold on to his right to not have to go down to earth. Jesus didn't hold on to his right to say, you know what, I don't have a right to be disrespected. I don't have a right to be poor. I don't have a right to be persecuted, spit on, beat. I don't have, I don't have, a, a, have a right to do those things. He didn't hold on to those rights. Instead, he let go. And what Paul is really describing for us is the humility of Jesus. Verse seven, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, that God became a man. The Bible tells us elsewhere that, that though he was rich, he became poor. Though he was worshiped by angels, he was despised by men. Though he lived in glory, he came in humility. And this is shocking. Remember, this is the creator of the universe entering into his creation in the lowest position possible. Shocking. This is inc- incredible. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, meaning he's the same stuff as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's saying that, look, the humility of Jesus is best, best seen in the cross of Jesus, in him dying at the hands of the people he created. It's an unparalleled, incredible act of humility. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing passage of scripture that Jesus humbly chose to set aside his rights to set aside the continual use of his divine attributes, he still retained them, he didn't, but he chose not to use them so that he could live a life that was fully human, so that he could identify with you and with me. The struggles that you are facing in life right now, the heartache that you are facing, the loss and the pain, Jesus, he was fully human. He can identify with your struggles and with your sorrows. He's a God that we can know, that we can trust, that we can talk to, that we can relate to. He can help us. He can identify with you. Jesus is a humble God who has come into human history. That's the message of the incarnation. And really what Jesus actually, or what Paul tells us is that now we're called to follow that very example in our lives. That we're to model, we're to have the same mindset as Jesus. And if I were to really say it this way, the the picture of the incarnation or or really the mindset that we ought to have here at Northridge Church, it's this, that the way up is down. The way up is down. You see, the incarnation flips everything upside down. 
in terms of the way we think about success and how to make it and earn it in life and, you know, and strive for, the incarnation flips everything upside down because we live in a world that's all about pride. It's all about self-esteem, self-actualization and self-help, but Jesus was humble. It wasn't about him. It was about glorifying the Father and helping us. That is why Jesus came. Jesus had a right to be worshiped. He had a right to be obeyed. Jesus had a right to be followed. But he let go of those rights. And Paul is saying here that instead he chose the lowest position. He said, you know what? No, I'll come and I'll serve. The way up is down. And we're called to have that same mindset. And it all starts by understanding the gospel, that we are all sinners in need of a savior and our sin separates us from a perfect and holy God. And there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to repair that relationship with God. You can't do enough good things. You can't earn your way back to God. It's not about you or us and what we do, but instead it's all about what Jesus has already done for us and dying on the cross in our place for our sins. And when we believe in him and his death, we're offered forgiveness. And then we're called as Christians to continually live out and follow that mindset, that mindset of Jesus, of servant leadership. The way up is down. We're called to defer. We're called to serve others first, to put the needs of other people before our own. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 20, verse 27. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're called to follow this example. We're called to put the needs of others before our own. You want to be great? Serve others. That means husbands, you're called to put the needs of your wife before your own. Wives, that means you're called to put the needs of your husband before your own. Your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, your teammates, your neighbors, you're called to put the needs of others before our own. We're called to follow the mindset of Jesus, of being a servant leader. The way up is down. That's the amazing message of the incarnation, that creator God stepped into his creation, fully God and fully man. Really what this is, it's a beautiful picture of God's amazing, incredible love for us. That he would let go of his rights, enter into creation in the lowest position possible to serve and to give his life for us so that we could know and experience perfect peace forgiveness and hope and eternity with him. That is the amazing, beautiful message of the incarnation, a beautiful picture of God's incredible love for us. And now we are called as followers of his to live out that mindset. The way up is down. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus into this earth to save us from our sins. Jesus, you are God, you are man. And it's, I know it can be crazy to try to wrap our minds around, but God, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that Jesus is a God that we can know, can sympathize with us, sympathize with our weaknesses, that we can trust in, that we can lean into, to, we can put our hope in. And I pray, God, that, um, that that belief in who Jesus is would change us, that we would desire to be people that put others first, that it's not about us, It's about putting the needs of others before our own. And in doing so, we are actually reflecting Jesus to the world around us. God, it's hard to do and it's countercultural, but I pray that you would help us by your strength and spirit to live out that mindset each and every day. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.